Well, hey, good morning. Um, today we are continuing on in our series of uh, I Pledge Allegiance, uh, exploring the significance of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. Um, and just a reminder of the backstory of, of this uh, series. Um, the goal of it was not to convince you to vote or how to vote. Um, because honestly, I don't know that a four-week series leading up to the election would convince you otherwise. <laughs> I think those sorts of uh, convictions and shapings come from like a long-term investment in a community. Um, so hopefully, whatever your involvement in our, our community has been, has done that shaping. Um, but rather, the, the goal of the series was to provide a little bit of um, sanity, despite whatever like uh, would happen after the election. Um, or what could still happen after the election, uh, and to give us a little bit of like theological grounding and framework, uh, especially from like the the peculiar position that we as Mennonites have in the world of politics, um, and so that's the hope of the series. Um, uh, today uh, we're gonna try and get a little bit practical um, and explore what does it mean to be part of the system. Um, and then next week, uh, we are hoping to have uh, a guest speaker uh, by the name of James Talbert with us. Um, so that'll be a good one. And that's Christ the King Sunday, which, yes, was totally intentional to end the series with uh, Christ the King Sunday. So um, there's a good bit of uh, um, irony there for you. So uh, before we jump in this morning, let's pause for a word of prayer. Loving God, um, we are so grateful uh, for this chance to, to gather together. God, we're, we're grateful for um, the gift of technology that can unite us, um, whether we're together here in the sanctuary or in our homes. God, we're grateful to be together. God, as we um, take this moment to open up the scriptures and wrestle with them, we recognize your spirit among us. Again, here in the sanctuary and the same spirit uh, uh, meeting us in our homes on Zoom. Uh, God, we open ourselves up to your spirit. Would your spirit lead us and guide us and shape us and form us into the image of Jesus? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was in college, I lived in Michigan for a total of like 10 or 11 months over a two-year period while I was interning at a church there. And uh, I really enjoyed my time in Michigan. Uh, I was connected with a really great church and developed a lot of really good life-giving shaping meaningful relationships uh, while I was there. And the city that I was in was on the far eastern side of the state, uh, and the city kind of ran parallel with the water, and it was just a really, really beautiful place to live. I really enjoyed my time in Michigan, but I gotta be honest, as a sports fan, the biggest problem with living in Michigan was living in Michigan. <laughs> uh, because of the nature of um, uh, why I was there, I was uh, meeting a lot of new people pretty regularly. And uh, the conversation went the way that the conversation always goes, right? You start talking about your interests, and then I would say that I, I was interested in sports, and then almost inevitably, there was the question. Are you a Michigan or a Michigan State fan? Now, in Michigan, there's a, a rather strong divide between these two schools, right? People typically have an allegiance to one or the other, and they were trying to feel me out here. They were trying to see where my loyalties lied. They were trying to see where my allegiance was. They were trying to see if I was with them or against them. But unfortunately for them, um, my response was often uh, not only disappointing, but a bit disgusting for them. 
because my answer wasn't some neutral third party of like Kent State or something like that, but it was rather like uh, um, uh, a provocative and a provoking third party of Notre Dame. Now, if you know nothing about sports, you know nothing about Notre Dame or Michigan or Michigan State, just know that like, there's a good bit of animosity between Notre Dame and Michigan State, Notre Dame and Michigan. And so again, this left them often pretty disappointed because my allegiance wasn't with them, but it, often, but it also left them disgusted because my allegiance was to like a third party that like provoked and, um, and prodded into their own allegiance. They really wanted to like try and back me into a corner, make me pick a side, compromise myself in one way to say I'm a Michigan fan or a Michigan State fan. And my response wasn't just a neutral third party, third way sort of thing of like Kent State, but it was, it was rather taking a position, but it was an alternative position. It was a third way position of Notre Dame. Now when we talk about uh, third way, um, this is a word or a phrase that um, is really near and dear to the, the Christian faith. Um, and really for us as Mennonites, this is like a, a core understanding of who Jesus was and the life that Jesus invites us into. Um, a third way essentially says that we live in a world that wants to draw binaries. Um, it wants to, to force us to choose left or to choose right, or it wants to, us to choose option A or option B, and it doesn't present any other sort of options within this, this binary. But a third way recognizes that maybe there are flaws on both the left and the right. The third way recognizes that maybe there's flaws in both option A and option B, and it recognizes that maybe there's a, a better, more beautiful way, and that's a third way. Um, now, I'll be honest, like, uh, as I was exploring uh, the Mennonite tradition, this is something that really intrigued me um, because I was so exhausted and so tired of the, the age-old battle of, like, uh, this tug-of-war between left and, right, left and right or option A or option B. And there was something really beautiful and really compelling about this alternative third way that Jesus offers and invites us into. Um, but over the last few months, uh, I've noticed that this phrase, third way, has drawn some heat. And those that have been giving it the most heat are Mennonites. You can imagine like how incredibly disorienting this was to see people who are like relatively large voices within our denomination critiquing this perspective of a third way. And so I really sat in on this and really tried to pay attention and figure out what was going on here. And it seemed as though um, there have been some people who have co-opted this idea of a third way. And when they talk about a third way, they essentially say, we have the left, we have the right. And so we're going to plant a flag thoroughly in the middle and call this the kingdom of God. <laughs> essentially, this is what we might call like a moderate or a centrist position. But the problem is, if you've ever read like the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the gospels, he doesn't strike me as much of a moderate. <laughs> but then there's also another group that has kind of co-opted this idea of a third way and has uh, claimed it to be like totally apolitical. That the, the systems and the kingdoms of the world can kind of do their own thing. They can kind of like wreak havoc, um, but we're just gonna kind of be our own utopic sort of kingdom-minded society. But the problem with this perspective is too, uh, that like Jesus didn't do this either. Like there were Jewish communities that had withdrawn from the, the way of the empire. They had uh, isolated themselves, they had removed themselves. So this would have been an option for Jesus. But that's not what we see with Jesus. Like Jesus thoroughly existed within the system, but offered like this radical alternative called the kingdom of God. 
And so when we talk about the third way of Jesus, recognize like we're not talking about like just a moderate or a centrist perspective. We're not talking about like an apolitical, like we're not like saying that we're not taking sides in anything. But when we say the third way, like we're talking about like a radical alternative um, that, that's called the kingdom of God. And when it comes to this kingdom of God, like it refuses to be compromised by pledging its allegiance to left or right or option A or option B. It will certainly take sides because we see time and time again throughout the Gospels, Jesus like saying that this kingdom of God revolves and is centered around like the poor, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the foreigner among you. But it refuses to like um, be subject to this label of either left or right or A or B. Now we bring all of this up because um, we're in the series of I Pledge Allegiance. And up to this point, we have um, talked about um, the, the good news of Jesus. The, the, the news of the kingdom is the good news for Jesus. For people who are exhausted and nervous and overwhelmed and anxious about the systems and the ways of this world, Jesus comes and brings an alternative system and way and kingdom. And this would have most certainly been good news. And then, uh, like we looked at last week, we talked about um, this role that faith or pledging our allegiance can play in being saved from all that wants to colonize our souls. And these two ideas are a bit abstract, and so today we want to get a little bit more practical and talk about, like, what does it mean to, to live and exist within another kingdom, to live and exist within another system and way of being, and how do we do that in a way that honors this commitment to the kingdom of God? Essentially, we're asking the question of how much can we and should we be involved in politics? So uh, to help us wrestle through that, uh, we're going to be looking at a, a story in Matthew 22. Um, now, up to this point, in, or when we, when we uh, step into Matthew 22, um, there's a broader story that's happening. Uh, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, and Jesus uh, comes to the temple. And recognize that the temple is like the center of like all things Jewish. Like it's the center of Jewish life. It's the center of Jewish faith. It's the center of Jewish culture. And so like this is where the things were happening. And so Jesus shows up at the temple and begins to talk. And immediately, like, he's questioned by the religious leaders. And then Jesus starts telling all of these stories, these parables, these teachings. And all of these stories, parables, and teachings are a bit of, like, a side eye looking at the religious leaders. And you can feel them sweating just a little bit with all of them. And so as we step into Matthew 22, we recognize that Jesus is having a bit of, like, a, a showdown with the religious leaders here. And so uh, we come to Matthew 22, verse 15. And we're told, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show difference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's or Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. Now, again, uh, we step into this and like the, the context behind the story is essentially asking this question of like, how much can we and should we be involved in politics? 
And so uh, we, uh, like a simple straightforward answer, or a simple straightforward reading of this sees like a pretty clear-cut answer. Um, Jesus says, well, give to Caesar or the empire the things that are the empires and give to God the things that are, are God's. And this is often what's referred to as a dual allegiance. Like we can have like a, a full-fledged allegiance to the kingdom of the world, uh, the kingdom of the United States, and we can live out those full responsibilities of being a citizen in this, elite, in this kingdom. But we also have a full allegiance to the kingdom of God, and we can live full allegiance into the kingdom of God as well. Now, every once in a while, these two things may conflict, and whatever, we'll sort that out at the end of the day. But, you know, we, for the most part, we can hold these dual allegiances. But the problem is, and I hope you've picked this up by now, things with Jesus often aren't quite as straightforward and simple as they appear. <laughs> Because we recognize, like, this wasn't just an, an innocent question on the parts of the religious leaders. Because we're told at the very beginning of this interaction that they plotted to entrap Jesus. They come to Jesus with this loaded question, and the question is about something called a tax. Now, when we think of taxes, we think of something that gets shaved off the top of our paycheck and goes to supporting roads and bridges and those sorts of things and you know we may complain about whoever's in office and the amount of taxes that they charge on us or whatever it may be but for a first century Jew the the issue of taxes was really an explosive one because if you remember a few weeks ago we talked about how um, uh, in the time of Jesus the Jews were in what was traditionally their homeland Um, they were in this plot of land that they once lived in autonomy they had autonomous control over this land and yet At one point along the way, the Roman Empire, the big bad superpower of the day, stepped in, claimed authority over it, and claimed them under their rule and reign. So now, like the Jews who were once living in a home that they owned are now renting and have to listen to uh, a landlord, but now they're also having to pay to live there in the form of taxes. So taxes were a way of Rome, like flexing their muscles, stepping in, reminding everybody who was in charge, who was calling the shots. And so when, the, Pharisees, or so when the, the religious leaders come to Jesus and ask him this question about taxes, this is a loaded, loaded question. Uh, Mennonite scholar Willard Swartley describes it well, and he says, The tax issue in first century Palestine was explosive. The zealots, revolutionaries against Rome, refused payment. The Sadducees, and certainly the Herodians, who collaborated with Rome, paid taxes in good conscience. The Pharisees, having internalized and legalized their piety, paid but with anguish. It's safe to say that the Pharisees and the Herodians considered Jesus to be on the other side of the issue. They held him to be a tax refuser. The trap was set for Jesus to say no to the payment of taxes, but it publicly exposed him as an insurrectionist, giving the Romans an excuse to rid the land of him. But by saying yes, pay the taxes, Jesus would have settled with the same compromise as that of the Herodians and the Pharisees an unlikely position for Jesus. So again, the trap is set. Jesus, do we pay taxes? If you say no, you're an insurrectionist, you're an enemy of Rome, Rome will step in and uh, deal with you the way that Rome always deals with you. Or if you say yes, then you have just revealed your cards and shown that you have compromised yourself in the same way that we have. This is what people were asking me to do when they asked if I was a Michigan or a Michigan State fan. They were wanting me to expose myself in some way and to to pledge my allegiance one way or another. But notice, like, the ultimate, like, Jesus wisdom here. (laughs) Jesus, like, jukes out of this question and doesn't really answer it. But instead, Jesus says, show me a coin. 
And so they bring him a, a coin, and he holds it up, and he looks at it, and he says, well, whose head is on this? Whose inscription, whose title is on this? Well, within this coin, it would have had an image of Caesar on it. And it would have had an inscription that said something along the lines of, Long live the Son of God. Meaning that this is more than just a coin, but like this is a reminder of Rome's dominance in your life. As one commentator notes, the coin functioned as, a portable bill, uh, as portable billboards, instruments of propaganda which reminded users of the emperor's political power and Rome's status as the favorite of the gods. Like this was a political thing, but it was also a religious thing, reminding the people who was in charge both politically and religiously. And make no mistake, like this coin was nothing shy, was nothing shy of an idol. <laughs> It was something that was instilled to, to like cultivate some level of worship, some sort of devotion, some level of allegiance. And for a first century Jew, this would have been an incri- incredibly incriminating thing for them to possess because according to the second commandment, God strongly and strictly prohibits any sort of idol. And so here Jesus, while they're trying to force Jesus to reveal his hands, Jesus forces them to reveal their hands and exposes them as idolaters with this coin. And now as we get to Jesus' answer, it seems as though Jesus is drawing on this wisdom of the second commandment. Because Jesus recognizes that we become like that which we worship. And so Jesus says, then give to Caesar the things that are of Caesar's. Jesus recognizes that the way of Caesar and the way of Rome is wanting to compete for and corrupt and compromise and colonize our souls. And he says, we have no business of dabbling with them anyways. Because if that's the thing that you're worshiping, that's the way that you're going to be shaped and formed. And he says, but the things of God, give these to God. Give to God the things with life and blood and passion and hopes and dreams. Give to God the things that bear the image of God. Give to God human beings. And when we give these things to God, when we give ourselves to God, when we worship God, we then become shaped and formed into God's very self, exhibiting the character and the nature of God, living into this full potential of who God created us to be from the very beginning. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. So remember then that uh, the context of this comes on the heels of this, uh, this question, like essentially asking, how much can we and should we be involved in politics? Well, it seems as though, like, uh, at the very least, if we're to do this justice, like, Jesus is at least very, very skeptical of the ways of politics and warns about being too closely involved with them, being too closely enmeshed in them, because he recognizes the ways that they can shape and form us. But here's the problem. Um, we find ourselves like pretty enmeshed in the system of the, the kingdom of the U.S., right? We find ourselves deeply enmeshed in the, in the system that we find ourselves in. Um, maybe we don't have a coin with Caesar's head on it, but we have uh, a piece of paper with Washington or Jackson or um, any of the other uh, people, right? Um, And we find that we can be shaped and formed by this as well. Um, And so we have to ask the question, like, what does it mean to to pledge our allegiance to the kingdom of God and yet find ourselves in the midst of another system? 
Well, there's often two approaches to this. Um, the first approach is what we might call like a compromise. And uh, these would be religious folks who say like, listen, let's just call a spade a spade. Like, how much can we fight against this system? How much good does it do to fight against the system? So maybe we just give in to the system and maybe we cozy up with power and maybe as we cozy up with power, we can gain power and maybe as we gain power, we can begin to shape what power looks like. But the problem with this is anytime we gain power, we have been shaped and formed by power to the point that we can no longer shape and form power itself. And here we need to hear the words of Jesus and recognize that what we worship, we become like. And so there's a very deep danger with compromising ourselves and cozying up with power. So the other alternative that's often presented is what we might call like cutting out. So like just withdrawing completely, like going and creating our own utopic kingdom-minded society somewhere else apart from the system. But again, the problem with this is like we don't see Jesus doing that. This would have thoroughly been an option for him. But instead, we see Jesus being part of the system, living and existing within the system. And in fact, we see at the core of Jesus's prayer, God, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? It's not an escapist sort of thing, but it's a transformational thing right here and now. So we have these two unfavorable options. And here I think we have the wisdom of Jesus's third way. Um, and this is what some have called a conflicted allegiance. Uh, conflicted but not compromised. And a conflicted allegiance recognizes that um, uh, we as citizens of the kingdom of the United States possess a certain level of power and privilege and influence. And maybe we can take that power and privilege and influence and leverage it in a way that leads to the outcomes that are desired by the kingdom of God. That is a very, very gray area. I get that. And it can all sound a bit like compromise. So uh, to help us think about it, imagine that you find yourself living on uh, the U.S.-Mexico border uh, in Texas. You've gotten to know your neighbor next door to you. Um, and uh, over the last couple of years, you, you've seen just how incredibly kind and loving and hardworking and supportive of their family this person is. And then one day they tell you that they're undocumented. And they begin to tell you about the situation that they fled from, and they begin to tell you about how they're the central support figure of the system that they live in now, and they begin to tell you about their fears of what they're hearing at the, like, the national political level. And they say to you, I can't vote, but you can. And you begin to think about the kingdom of God, and you begin to think about this, this uh, triad at the, the heart of God throughout the Old Testament of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, the foreigner among you. And you think, well, maybe this is time for a conflicted allegiance of where I step in with my power and privilege and influence to bring about the ends of the kingdom of God, like a more just and equitable society. It's not compromising, it's not cozying up with power, but it's using whatever power and privilege that we might have to bring about this result. Now I get, this can be a really, really uncomfortable thing for us, particularly as Mennonites, because we have a complicated history with like how much do we be involved in politics. Um, historically, we have been very, very skeptical, probably at best, <laughs> and a bit apolitical uh, at times too. And I think if we go back to like the history of the 16th century, that makes sense, right? We existed in a monarchy, like how much power and privilege and influence did we have in shaping uh, society at that point anyways. 
If we go all the way back to Jesus's time, like he certainly didn't have much power and privilege or influence to shape this beast of Rome. But we recognize that we live in a different system now. We, we live and we exist in a participatory democracy. And we do have power and privilege and influence to shape society into a more just and equitable one. And so I think like we have to like ask this question of like, what does it mean to, or what does it mean and what does it look like to utilize this power and privilege and influence um, to create a more just and equitable society? Um, there's a, a website called the Third Way Cafe, uh, which as you might have guessed is a Mennonite website. Uh, and they have a number of articles and frequently asked questions on it. And uh, one of those is dedicated to the topic of politics. Um, and towards the end of this um, discussion, it asks this really helpful question. It says, will this political involvement enable me to be an ambassador of Christ's reconciliation? Will this participation in any way violate my commitment to the way of Christ and compromise my loyalty to Christ? I think this is a really good and meaningful and necessary question for us to ask. But I think the question also needs to be asked on the flip side, not just about involvement, but non-involvement. Meaning, will this political non-involvement enable me to be an ambassador of Christ's reconciliation? Will this non-participation in any way violate my commitment to the way of Christ and compromise my loyalty to Christ? It's not just simply a question of should I be involved, but rather is involvement or non-involvement closer to the way of Jesus? And here's like, my answer to that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I think that that's something that we together as the people of God have to like wrestle and discern with together. Um, I think we have to hear a wide variety of experiences and um, uh, um, interactions with this. I think we need to have the experience and stories of um, some old school Mennonites that have refused to be part of the political system and yet have lived a life that is working towards a more uh, just and equitable society. But I think we also need to hear and wrestle with the stories of like a John Lewis who gave much of his young life to like just earning the right to vote and then gave his entire adult life to like trying to shape the system in a way that w led to a more just and equitable society. I think we have to take these two stories and hold them in tension and wrestle with them and discern for ourselves whether involvement or non-involvement is closer to the way of Jesus. I don't know the answer to that, um, but I hope that as we wrestle with that together, we can um, begin to um, draw closer to the way of Jesus together. So regardless of what we choose, um, involvement or non-involvement, may we know the good news of Jesus that for those of us who are anxious and nervous and overwhelmed and exhausted and burned by the system, that there's a new system, a new kingdom, a new way of being. Um, and may we know that like pledging our allegiance to this kingdom, this way of being, will save our souls from all that wants to colonize them. And as we uh, discern involvement or non-involvement, may we join in on the work of God's kingdom to, to create like a more just and equitable society. Amen. Uh, so, as we've done the last few weeks uh, to close our sermon time, uh, we're going to read our call and response prayer uh, titled, We Pledge Allegiance. So join with me, if you will. 
Today we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God. We pledge our allegiance to peace that is not like Rome's. We pledge our allegiance to the gospel of enemy love. We pledge our allegiance to the kingdom of the poor and broken. We pledge our allegiance to a king who loves his enemies so much he died for them. We pledge our allegiance to the least of these with whom Christ dwells. We pledge our allegiance to the transnational church that transcends the artificial borders of nations. We pledge our allegiance to the refugee of Nazareth. We pledge our allegiance to the homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head. We pledge our allegiance to the cross rather than the sword. We pledge our allegiance to the banner of love above any flag. We pledge our allegiance to the one who rules with a towel rather than an iron fist. We pledge our allegiance to the one who rides a donkey rather than a war horse. We pledge our allegiance to the revolution that sets both oppressed and oppressors free. We pledge our allegiance to the way that leads to life. We pledge our allegiance to the slaughtered lamb. We pledge our allegiance. And together we proclaim his praises from the margins of the empire to the centers of wealth and power. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Amen.